Well, good morning. You know, last night it's like 9.30, and I don't know why I was thinking about this. I don't think my job's in jeopardy, so I shouldn't have been thinking about this. But I was reflecting on uh, that awful process when you're in the middle of a job interview, and they ask you that really awful question, what's your biggest weakness? And, you know, people start giving all the really awful answers where they're like, you know, I just work too hard. I'm too servant-hearted. I learn things too easily. Really, it's a detriment to me and everybody around me. And it's always like the most dishonest answers, and you'll find out within like a week or two what their real weaknesses are. For me, uh, I've had the pleasure just being young. You know, I had some internships in college, and I've just had a lot of different jobs in the last few years. I've gone through this a lot, and I found that I think I actually have a pretty decent, honest answer to this question. And for me, it's that I don't learn things quickly. I just don't. I am not a quick learner at all. It's like, you give me like four or five times of practicing something, maybe 20, and at around that part is when I start getting the hang of it and being able to actually do what I need to do. It's not a great thing to admit because that's not really what employers want, but hey, it is, it is just the brutal honesty of the situation. If you give me directions and you don't write it down, you just like verbally tell me something for the first time, I promise you it's in one ear and out the other. It means absolutely nothing to me. When my mom gives me directions to a place I've never been, I, I physically cannot listen. I, I don't know what it is. I need to have something more than just the instructions. And I was thinking about how about a year ago, I got this desire to build a record player cabinet, uh, which is funny because I'm like the least handy person on earth, and I don't even know that I know how to hold a hammer correctly. So I was trying to figure out what to do, and I enlisted the help of my buddy John Whitlow, who, if you know him, is like the perfect guy for the job. So John, I'm texting him, uh, tell him what my plan is, and he starts drawing me a diagram, like multiple diagrams. He gives me all these really detailed instructions. He tells me exactly what to buy out at Home Depot, and I still messed it up. <laughs> now, this record player cabinet, it works. I mean, it, it holds records. It holds my record player, uh, but the back just has a hole through it where I just didn't line up the wood correctly. So. John really needed to be there in person and do it along with me and let me practice like 15 or 20 times just to be able to build something really simple like that. And the reason I bring that up, the reason I was thinking about this, is because I don't know if you guys are like me, but I need a lot of help when I'm trying to do something new and something hard. I'm not somebody that can just do something on the first try, and I typically need more than just instructions. I need the example. And as we're thinking through Romans, right, we're at the end, basically. Next week's the last week of this series that we've been going through for 10 months now. As we think about the structure of the letter, the first 11 chapters, that's the doctrine. But that is Paul meticulously outlining what the gospel is, who God is. And then in the last few chapters, from 12 through 15, we've been looking at how this actually plays out in the lives of Christians in the church, in Christian community. But to me, honestly, I'm glad that he didn't stop there because the list of instructions isn't always enough for me. I can look at it and see, oh, I need to do this, but in reality, I need to see somebody living it out. And that's what I see Paul doing so clearly in this passage that Neil and Tina read for us this morning. Because 
when we're looking at a passage that's so big like this, you can kind of get lost in the weeds of like Paul's talking about his travel plans and he's talking about all these different things that he's done and that he's wanting to do. But what I really want us to grasp that I think is important is that the, the trend line going straight through all of this is that Paul is an example of the life lived out based on the principles that he's been explaining in chapters 12 through 15, built on the foundations that we see in Romans 1 through 11. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, right, imitate me as I imitate Christ, and I think that he's giving us the picture of what it looks like to imitate Paul in this passage. I've got one thing that I want you to take away this morning, just one. This is going to be our main point, and I'm going to say it probably 30 times. We are empowered by God's grace to be enamored with God's glory. That's it. That is the entire purpose of why we're here. It's a one-sentence summary of Romans right there. We are empowered by God's grace to be enamored with God's glory. If you can get this down, your life is going to be radically different. It is going to be completely focused on Christ as Paul has intended. So let's unpack this. To be empowered by God's grace. This is what he's talking about in verses 14 through 16. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God, grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul's starting out this section by reminding the, the Roman church why he's writing to them in the first place. He said, hey, I, I know that you guys are believers, so much so that you should be instructing each other about these things now, but still, I need to write you a reminder. But why? why? Why does he feel like he's got this responsibility that he has to do it? Well, it's what he says in verses 15 and 16. It's because of the grace that has been given to him by God. Paul's responsibility, it's rooted in the grace that he's been given. If you need a refresher on what grace Paul's talking about here, think about Acts chapter 9, right? Paul is Saul. He's persecuting the early church, seeing to it that Christians are being imprisoned and killed. And it's there on that road to Damascus that he has an encounter with God and he is radically changed, brought from death to life to the point that he now becomes Paul and he's like the most famous missionary of all time. It's a grace that completely reordered Paul's life. If you need a refresher on this grace, read Romans 1 through 11. This is where he's been really clearly arguing the entire just basis of the gospel, which I kind of find it funny that he says, uh, he's like, I just felt like I needed to remind you guys about like a couple of things and then proceeds to give us like the most detailed and beautiful picture of the gospel that anybody's ever written. Uh, I, I just find that funny. But that's the grace that Paul's talking about here. It's a grace that tells us that all human beings are sinners. Right? It's a grace that tells us what our condition truly is, but that because of God's goodness, despite the fact that we were his enemies, that Christ has come and died for the ungodly. 
that he has come to free us from our debt, that he has come to reconcile us to the Father where we are going to be secure for all eternity. This is the grace that has empowered Paul. And yes, for him specifically, it was a grace that put him in the position of being an apostle. For him here, specifically in this moment, to have the authority to write to this church. But the thing is, before it was ever a grace that put him in a position of leadership, it was a grace that put him in a position of sonship. Before Paul did anything for God, he had to become a child of God, which is what we just sang about. God doesn't leave people where we're at. Right? He makes us a child. He brings us into the family, and we're literally brought from death to life. And what that means is that God is not going to leave us to live like dead people. We've got to live differently. And so that's exactly what Paul's life looks like here. And so he, he starts comparing himself to an Old Testament priest. That's what he's doing in verses 16 and 17. He's been given grace to be saved, but this grace now also compels him to labor on behalf of the gospel. And so he, he compares himself using a bunch of priestly Old Testament language. And the main point that he's getting at is that he sees himself as a sort of priest where instead of bringing a lamb onto an altar and sacrificing that as what becomes a, a pleasing aroma up to God, he sees himself as a sort of priest who is bringing the gospel to people who don't have it. And as they present themselves to God as living sacrifices, right, what we talked about in Romans 12 a few weeks ago, and when they do that, that is the pleasing aroma being raised up to God. So that's our big key statement for the morning, we see that Paul is empowered by grace. He could not do any of this on his own because the thing is, he couldn't even be alive on his own. Dead people don't raise themselves. And that's where we get to the second half. We are empowered by God's grace, but the important thing is that this does something in us. And it is that we become enamored with God's glory. This is where we'll spend the majority of the time this morning. These are verses 17 through 32. We are empowered by God's grace to be enamored with his glory. What does it mean to be enamored with something? It's like an obsession. You need this. You have to have it. You love it. It could be a person it could be your obsession with coffee or ferrets or like whatever thing that you people like. Everybody's got their own things. But to be enamored with it is to be obsessed with it. And so to be enamored with God's glory specifically, that's to be somebody who is absolutely obsessed with God getting his glory and the glory that he deserves. That is the key. Everything is about God's glory. We have to understand that before anything else Everything is about God's glory. And glory is something that we talk about a lot. We sing about it. It's a, it's a very religious term. But I think that we throw it around sometimes without actually grasping what it really means. Like it's not something that's typically in our like daily vocab in a way that, that I think we process what it means. So I want to take a second and make sure that we do understand it. Glory is really referring to weightiness. It's something holding weight in your life. 
I like the way that J.R. Vassar explains it. He says that to give glory to something means to deem it impressive, to attribute worth to it as something that possesses significance and importance. All of us, all humans love glory. We are completely all about it. And so Vassar explains that we are hardwired to ascribe glory and to praise what we deem as impressive. That is the natural response to when we ascribe weight to something. It's because we're addicted to greatness. We're addicted to greatness, and when we see it, we ascribe worth and value to it in our lives. And that in and of itself isn't really a problem. The problem is that sin causes us to distort what we glorify. Sin causes us to distort what we glorify. We start ascribing weight and value and greatness to things that don't quite deserve it, saying that things are ultimate that are not ultimate, and the result of this is that those things, whether it's other people or other things or even ourselves, they can't bear the weight of it, and so they collapse under the pressure. It doesn't make sense for us to live for any glory other than God's because God is the only one who is actually worthy of being ascribed an ultimate weight in our lives. I think about it like this. Um, my brother is a really, really good singer. Me, on the other hand, not so much. I feel bad for the pits who had to, to kind of listen to me there before we started. And I, I don't think that Dan and Amy are going to be knocking on my door anytime soon to join the worship team. But he was always a great singer. And so when we were growing up, he was a part of this choir thing. And I was always at these shows. And they would do performances and concerts and musicals and just everything. And it was really cool. Like, I loved being a part of it even if being a part of it just meant that I was kind of sitting backstage and like hanging out with these people that had become my friends. But I felt like I was a part of something that was bigger than myself. This would be a problem if during one of those shows, I were to say, man, this is great. I love this. But you know what would make this better? Me. Center stage. Like what, what would happen if I decided to walk up in the middle of the concert and take center stage, grab a mic, and become the lead vocalist, just shouting past everybody else. For one, I'd probably be viral within like 24 hours if people didn't flee for the exits. But it wouldn't be good. Guys, it, it would not be good. I don't deserve to be in that position because the greatness isn't there. It doesn't fit the position. And so I, I think about how this relates to us and God. I think in the grand scheme of the story of the universe, God is the only person who truly deserves to be center stage. He is the main character, we aren't. And so when we try to put ourselves into God's position and say, well, it's gonna need to be all about me or all about this thing that I care about, and we make that our whole focus, the only thing that's gonna happen is that we will be crushed by the disappointment of reality. Because it can't be all about you. It just can't. There's a reason that the planets don't orbit around, like, Earth, right? There's a bigger point to which it will have to orbit around. Paul, in thinking of somebody who's a really good example of this, he's somebody who's been calibrated correctly to this idea of glory. Paul looks at God and realizes that he alone is worthy of being deemed most impressive. And we see that his life is radically different as a result as what we see in this passage. 
And you remember how he ended the first 11 chapters of Romans? Right, the example that we've used is that it's like he was climbing this mountain for 11 chapters, just trudging through this beautiful doctrine of God and getting up to the top and getting to the peak and looking back and just taking a step back and going, wow, God is so good. Right, what does he say? He says, oh, the depths and the wisdom, or the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Let me be honest, when I read that, I don't see my name there. I don't see it as, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of Matthew, for from Matthew and through Matthew and to Matthew are all things, to Matthew be glory forever. And to be honest, I don't see any of your names there either. It's a, a problem for us to live under this guise of to us be the glory forever. When we live like that, we crush ourselves and everything around us under the weight that it cannot bear. But on the flip side, when we're enamored more and more with God's glory because he's the one who deserves it, our lives will look radically different and they'll be better as a result. And so in this passage, I think that we see three ways that the Christian life is ordered around being enamored with God and what this actually looks like. So our first point is that we will be a people who choose humility over pride. It's what Paul talks about in verses 17 through 19. He's explaining, right, we shouldn't be prideful about ourselves and the things that we accomplish and we do, but instead we only take pride and only boast in what God has done and what God does through us. We're supposed to be a people who are pointing the spotlight on to God. I think about it like our, our accomplishments, they just don't make sense for us to sit and brag about. For me to take a step back and really brag about something that I've achieved, it's like, well, it's kind of on borrowed everything. The things that I'm doing are from breath that God's putting in my lungs, from a body that he's given me, as an outworking of the salvation that he has given me because I was dead apart from him. So for me to start bragging in my accomplishments as though I've actually achieved anything, it's foolish. And it's like the, it's like the kid who wants to really be independent. And so he like tells his parents, like, like, treat me like an adult from now on. I deserve this. Like, I'm this and that. And the parents are like, great, all right. Rent's due on the first. Like, start paying for your room. By the way, that 30-minute that shower you took, you got to pay for that. Oh, don't start eating that food in the fridge. That's mine. You can go to the store and get your own. It's that kind of foolishness where we, we don't recognize like, just how much anything that we do is completely affected by the fact that we've been given all of these good gifts. We're in borrowed territory when it comes to our lives, so God has to get all the credit. And this isn't like a bad thing. This isn't about thinking less of ourselves. I'm not suggesting that we like, hate ourselves or think poorly of ourselves. No, it's that old quote that says, it's not about thinking less of yourselves, but about thinking of yourselves less. You just become less important to the main story. So number one, it's that we choose humility over pride. Number two, and this is a big one, we reshape our desires to align with God's. We reshape our desires to align with God's. This is verses 20 through 22. So Paul's talking about his mission work here. Right, he's looking back at everything that he's done, 
He's gone from point A to point B and point A back again, all around the world and back as they knew it. And he's concluding as he's looking forward at the things that he's wanting to do in the future, and he's saying, I've done my job. Like, I've preached the gospel. I've brought it into all of these areas. That's what he says in verses 20 and 21. Thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. According to that next verse, verse 22, Paul really wanted to go visit the believers in Rome. That is a desire that he had, and not a bad desire. And yet he knew that the ultimate thing, serving God so that people who didn't know him would come to know him, was worthy of his time. He was willing to sacrifice this desire in the greater service of God. And he knows that going out and reaching the unreached with the gospel is biblical. Because in this verse, he cites back to the Old Testament, back to the prophet Isaiah, to argue like, hey, what I'm doing, this is biblical. The greatest desire needs to be about getting the gospel to the lost. Because that means that God's glory is going out everywhere. And that's the point. It's always been the point. Think back to the garden, right? Adam and Eve. What, what's their command to do? It's be fruitful and multiply. So what are they doing when they do that? They're literally making a bunch of people who are image bearers of God, who are going to spread out across the whole world and literally spread God's glory across the world. From day one, it's been about that. Think about Abraham, the nation of Israel. The whole thing is that they were to be a light to the other nations, a blessing to the world. This would ultimately be fulfilled through Jesus, as we find out in the New Testament. But the whole point has always been that God's glory would spread out across the entire earth. And it's where the story's headed. Look at the last couple of chapters of Revelation, the end of the Bible. We see a picture of what it looks like for God's glory to be spread out over the earth. We see a picture of just how beautiful and glorious and perfect that world is. So Paul rightly recognizes just how crucial and necessary this mission work is, and that's why he's made it his ambition to go out and reach the unreached. But I want to add an important caveat here, because it might sound like on one reading, every Christian needs to go out and move overseas and be a foreign missionary. And I don't think that that's what Paul's arguing here. He said that this is his ambition. He's what we might call a pioneer missionary, somebody who goes out into a new area. But even here in this passage, we see that he expects that there will be people who stay. When Paul says that the gospel has been fulfilled as he's gone out and preached, he, he's not saying that he has literally spoken the full gospel to every single human being that he's come across for the last few decades. What he's saying is that he's traveled to all of these big cities and big areas and introduced the gospel to them, planted churches there, and equipped believers there so that then it will trickle out. It'd be like, to use just America as an example, it would be like going around to all the big cities in America and saying, okay, like now we've reached America because the people in those cities are gonna live their lives and as they live their lives, the gospel is gonna spread out more and more into all of the other towns and villages. So Paul expects that there are gonna be people who stay and be what we might call like settlers. But we need Christians who are going to go overseas. We absolutely need that. Maybe that's something that God might be asking you to consider. 
And if your desires are truly rooted in his, we reshape ours based on his, that becomes something more and more that we're like, hey, if God wants me to do that, praise God. Like that's a good thing and not a bad thing. But the two options are not, you either go to a foreign country and share the gospel, or you stay home and do nothing. It's not the options that Paul gives us. It's that wherever we go, we are bringing the gospel to the people who do not have it. I know we get kind of squeamish when we're in church and we're talking about missions and evangelism stuff. Everybody feels like I'm looking right at you. And we all feel like we aren't doing quite good enough in this thing and we never live up to the example. This morning, I don't want to take that guilt angle at all. That, that is not my intention. Even for a second, I just want us to not even think about evangelism. Just take a minute and look at God. Because when your eyes are fixed on God and you're meditating more and more on who he is and what he's done, when you are in awe of your salvation, what's going to naturally come as an outflowing of that is that you are going to want to share that life with other people. But if you shoot for evangelism and you shoot for a task that you get done, it's going to be a lot harder because you're trying to do it out of your own capacity. Instead of being empowered by God's grace in your life, you're trying to be empowered by your own need to, to feel like you've accomplished a task that you feel like you need to accomplish. But it's all about having our eyes fixed on God. I love this quote that I heard. Until we honestly find God to be beautiful and enjoyable, we will have nothing worth saying to the people around us. Nothing. Do we want to be a people who go share the gospel, the greatest truth of all time, and do so like nonchalantly? A people who just don't really care or seem like we care whether it's true or not? No, the gospel has power because it is the work of God. And when we are enamored with him, that shows. Like that it becomes evident to the people around us. So no, I'm not interested in making us feel bad about how much or how little we're sharing the gospel. What I desperately want is for us to be a people who are so caught up in God's beauty that we just can't help but overflow into sharing that with people. Because that's the example that I see in Paul's life. I don't know about you. If you think about everything that Paul went through, and we get the list elsewhere in scripture, right? This is a guy who's been shipwrecked, beaten, whipped, stoned. He goes hungry, sleepless, he's anxious. Listen, that is a hard life, a brutally, brutally hard life. And yet Paul does it with joy because he is completely enamored with God's glory and his life was wholly focused on that glory going out to the whole world. I think this is absolutely insane. You know what Paul says about all of those experiences as he's reflecting on it later in life? He thinks about all of these struggles that he's gone through. You know what he says? He calls it nothing more than a light, momentary affliction. Do you know how insane you have to be to say that? This dude's getting beaten within an inch of his life, seemingly like on a weekly basis. And he's looking at that and saying, eh, it's not a big deal. Not compared to eternity. That is the coolest thing ever. And I don't know about you, but that makes me want to go run through a brick wall. Genuinely. I go through stuff in life that's, Nothing like that. I stub my toe and I start acting like it is a heavy, eternal affliction. I'm doing the, how long, oh Lord, must I suffer? And it's like I stub my toe. 
Paul's being literally whipped almost to death. And it's just to him a light momentary affliction. That is power. Guys, that's a life with true power. Do you know how awesome it is to be unshakable? Like nothing can get you. You can't lose. Nothing that happens to you as you are seeking to serve and glorify God, it's going to glorify God. So whether you die, whether hard things happen, you don't lose. And that is the freeing, the most freeing and amazing power that I can ever imagine. And like I said, it makes me want to run through a brick wall. That's a picture of a life worth living. Not this American dream stuff that culture's trying to sell us. That's not a life really worth living. Oh, just chase my pleasure for this moment. Get all the possessions that I want. Retire early and live an easy life collecting the seashells on the beach. That's not a life worth living. This is a life worth living. So the question for us today is wherever you go, whether it's here in Knoxville or across the world, will you live for his glory and not your own? And then third, we labor in the ministry. This is what we see in verses 20 through 32, most of this section of scripture. I'm going to just try to summarize it in, in big, broad strokes. When you read these verses, you get the picture that the Christian life, it isn't easy, and it is completely filled with ministry. I don't mean ministry in the sake of like people who are employed by the church, but I'm talking about the ministry that all believers have, the ministry of the gospel going out to the lost. We are called to labor in the work of God, and this means that we will let our time, our money, our energy, our prayers, our desires, all of it is not what we want, but it comes down to what God wants for the sake of ministry. And remember, this isn't us working ourselves to death just because we think it's the right thing to do. No, it is us being empowered by the grace of God to labor for him. He's the one that tells us, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I look at this passage, I see that Paul is bringing money from Christians to Christians while he's talking to other Christians about paying for him and praying for him to go reach other Christians. Like That is what Paul's life is all about. It is all about helping other people follow Jesus. And that's what we must labor in. And labor is hard work. So that's what we do. That's it. We are empowered by God's grace to be enamored with God's glory. And as we do this, we have to look to Jesus. We have to look to Jesus. Like Paul said earlier, we imitate him as he imitates Christ. We can't make the mistake of idolizing Paul. Paul is not the end goal here. When we look to Paul, what that should be doing is then redirecting our gaze to look up at Jesus. Because Paul wasn't perfect, but Jesus was and is. Jesus is literally the glory of God as a person in the flesh. Like that's what the whole New Testament is making really, really clear. He's the one who made a way for us. He's the one who set the precedent. He's the one who did and lived the life that we're talking about here in these passages, in these verses, perfectly. Right? He's the one who perfectly labored in the ministry. 
He's the one who chose to do the Father's will over his own, to reject the desires of the flesh in service of God's greater story of redemption. He's the one who humbled himself to the point of obedience and death on a cross. He's the one who lived this all out. He is the true and perfect example of the kind of life that we see set forth in this passage. So, uh, brothers and sisters who are in Christ, press on in God's grace for his glory. Follow the example of Jesus. And the only way to do that, as we see in Hebrews 12, is by looking to Jesus. This is a passage that has been incredibly just helpful for me in these last few weeks. I've been thinking about it a lot. We have to run the race with endurance, and we get the impression from Scripture and from life that the race is hard, but the way that we run the race with endurance isn't just that we buck up and try harder. It's that we look to Jesus because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And if you're here this morning, and maybe even for the first time, God is revealing to you just how glorious he is, and you're like, man, that does sound great. If you want that, I have the best news in the world for you. It's free. You don't have to work for it because you can't work for it. You can't earn it. All you have to do is ask God and he will freely bestow the riches of his grace on you more and more and more. All you have to do is believe in him and you reorient your life to have him at the center instead of you at the center. You're not going to do it perfectly, because the Lord knows I don't. I struggle so much. But the thing is, we try and we get up and we try again because we are looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. If you want that this morning, Jesus is offering that to you freely right now. Don't miss out on that. And please don't leave this morning without talking to somebody. I'm going to invite the band back up. Let's just take a moment to pray and meditate on the glory of God. Jesus, you are so glorious. You are glorious beyond anything that we can ever imagine. Anything that we can even see, you are still greater. As we look this morning at what a life looks like that is filled by a desire, an all-consuming desire for your glory to go out to the ends of the earth, I pray that we would be a people who are enamored with it. God, help us to not chase after the things that are empty and that result in eternal death and emptiness. But let us live for what is true and eternal and good. Give us the strength to, like Paul, look at all of the various sufferings that we experience in this life and recognize that they are nothing but a light, momentary affliction. It's not that we're ignoring how hard these things are. No, we are feeling the full weight of what we're struggling with. But in comparison, with our eyes fixed on you, we know that you are greater. I pray that as we conclude this time of worship this morning, that you would help us to see you, Lord. We know that we're not seeing you face to face right now, but we will. And so for now, for the time being, I pray that we would have 
our spiritual eyes open to see your glory through your word, through your presence, through your spirit in our lives. And I pray that we will live for that and nothing else. It's in your name we pray. Amen.